0: Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we are so lucky to welcome in Dr. John Walton with us today. John, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. (laughs) Good, good. Hey, uh, now John, you're a professor of of Old Testament at Wheaton College and and graduate school, and you've written a number of books. You've um, been a part of a, a Bible commentary Um, most recently a couple years ago, your I think the Lost World of Adam and Eve was your most recent book, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh, I have several since then, but that's all right.
0: Oh wow. Well, I I don't know how many are mainstream and how many are academic, but um, I know that your work is out there all over the place. So, but I love getting to introduce people um to folks who have been really influential in my life. Um, and as we sort of jump in, you're you're an expert in um Hebrew and ancient Near East studies. Um, You teach a a number of classes along those lines. But um, just as we get into this, if you don't mind me asking, how do you end up becoming an expert in ancient Near East languages and history?
1: Well, it's just something that I became convinced was important for our interpretation of the Old Testament. I didn't get into ancient Near East because I wanted to be an Assyriologist or a specialist in Akkadian grammar. I got into it because I saw that the texts of the ancient world could provide a window to the world of the Old Testament. And if they provide a window, that means that they can be important for our interpretation. So really
0: in that sense, ancient Near East was a means to an end. Okay. All right. Well, um, just as we jump in here, and um, I want to give people a heads up that you're, you have the ability, you're, you really are one of the great experts in this area. And um, one of the things that I love about your work is that you have the capacity to communicate deep truths and complicated things in a way that's very accessible for everyday folks as well, uh, myself included. Um, and uh, even people like on your first on the first Lost World book you did on Genesis 1, um, even Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project and speaking of your book, said that, that you elevate Scripture to a new level of respectable understanding and you really help eliminate the, the discrepancies or the conflict between science and Scripture when it comes to uh, the origin, origins of humankind. Um, you know, one of the things as we jump in, because some of the stuff we're going to talk about will be challenging for people. It will challenge some maybe things they've held in the past. It might be helpful for them to what do you think about the Bible in general? I know that seems maybe an obvious question, but you know, how do you view it as a text? Because uh, I, don't know, I just think that might be helpful for people as we jump in here.
1: Sure. Uh, I consider the Bible to be God's revelation of himself uh, through a revelation of his plans and purposes for people. Uh, So in that sense, uh, we can penetrate the divine nature only so far, but he's given us enough about his plans and purposes and about what we have to do to participate in them so that we can actually jump on board, be part of that uh, kingdom process. So that's what the Bible reveals to us as God's word. Uh, Therefore, I consider one of the most important qualifiers to be authority. God's word is authority because we have to submit to it. We are accountable to it. And in that way, we always have to be careful that we are getting as best we can what it is that the biblical authors intended to communicate. God chose to communicate through human authors. And he could have done it individually for each of us through our minds, but he didn't. Um, he chose to use human authors in a particular time and culture. And so we have an obligation to, um, to try to understand what is being said by those authors. And that means we have to get in touch with their world, their culture, their language.
0: Yeah. Well, that's helpful. And um, like I said, there's some folks who are, who are Christians who listen. There's some who are not people of faith. And I just thought it would be helpful for them to, to understand the framework from which you come from. Um, you know, I think we can, both of your books that I that I think are, are very accessible at the popular level are the Lost World books. You have the Lost World of Genesis 1 and then the Lost World of Adam and Eve, which is where I first became exposed to your work. Um, but they sort of blend together in my in my observation, um, and so we might bounce back and forth between them, even though we'll stay a lot in the Adam and Eve book. Um, but for many people who sort of grew up in church, or frankly, even if they just watch television and seen images of the story of Adam and Eve, um, you know, it kind of goes, this Adam guy gets inflated out of dust, naked. God decides he's not complete and needs something. So he knocks him out, grabs a rib, and does a ma- second magic trick. And God sews them some leaves together so that the Sunday school children won't be traumatized. And next thing you know, Eve's eating an apple. Adam says, sounds cool. And all of a sudden, God shows up and tells everybody to get out of the pool. So, you know, that's the story we hear. Uh, but when looking at the story of Adam, Adam and Eve um, you say there's a number of issues that are rolled together and you don't think they need to be. And I and I know this is a long intro to a question, but uh, I also just want to say when I first heard you unbundle these things of Adam and Eve, particularly in these four categories, I listened to it no less than 25 times over the course of two or three months because I just could not believe how like mind-boggling, something that seems simple and obvious once you showed us could be there. So just giving people a heads up, this blew my mind. Maybe it will for them, maybe it won't. But what would you say are the things that people often bundle together with the story of Adam and Eve that you don't think need to be bundled together?
1: Well, we typically read texts from our own vantage point, uh, from our own modern culture. Uh, I eventually come to refer to that as our cultural river. Uh, despite what we may think of the cultural aspects around us, um, we're in it. If we resist it, we're still in it. If we swim with it, we're still in it. And so we have have this cultural river, and we tend to think that the Bible is addressing our cultural river, and we read it from our cultural river because that's the only one we've got. Mm -hmm. As a result, we tend to impose things on the text that don't belong there. Part of our cultural river is that we are extremely materialistic, no matter whether we're people of faith or not. We live in a world that values science, that uh, elevates the material above other aspects, and that's kind of the world that we're in. And so we tend to read the Bible through a materialistic perspective. Um, Our thinking is that if the Bible is true then it's going to be true in our world of thinking. And I think that's one of the things that that is an obstacle to us because we um, we end up making the Bible address questions which it was never intended to question. So when we read about Adam from dust and Eve from Adam's side or from his rib, Um, We immediately start thinking about science and human origins and comparing it to evolution and things of that sort, all from our cultural river, all from our vantage point, asking our questions. And I think that's what causes us the problems. We have to try to think of it more in an ancient worldview in their cultural river, which did not anticipate ours.
0: Hmm. Well, and I've heard you talk about, and and that's helpful, and I've heard you break this down, and I'm just going to… I hope as a service to my listeners, kind of walk them through the process I went through with you and you, I heard you break it down into Adam and Eve could be talked about. We talk about them in terms of the biological material origins of human beings. Um, We talk about the historicity of Adam and Eve, sort of the nature of image of God on mankind and then the origins of sin. And in those four areas, there's a number of things you write about and we can't go into all the depth. They'll have to read the books for that. But I wonder if we might just be able to touch on some of that, like individually, like maybe we'll start with the biological um, origin of, of human beings and just sort of um, what some of the things that you think along the lines of what you're saying. We've we've looked through these cultural lenses, maybe help us take a view a vantage point today of what a what a person in those times when it was written would have would have been thinking about rather than what we do today. So starting with the um, with the biological material origins of human beings.
1: Sure. Um as as I view it, Genesis 2 is not talking about biological human origins. It's talking about human identity, who we are. Now, again, in our world today, we tend to think of identity in terms of biology and in terms of material issues. But in the ancient world, they didn't. And so when we think about dust, we shouldn't be thinking about chemistry leading to biochemistry leading to biological origins. We should instead be thinking about what does dust mean for who we are as humans? And it's not hard to figure that out because all through scripture, dust is used to convey our frailty, our mortality, um, our neediness. And so the idea that we're created out of dust is not a material statement. A biological statement. It's rather a statement about kind of who we are. We're 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 frail. We're we're mortal.
0: Um, and so, so along along with dust. Just to just to jump in real quickly, you know, some people spend a lot of energy, you know, trying to identify the same elements that are in the the ground as they are in our bodies. Do you do you think that's valuable, or is it just a separate conversation as far as you're concerned? Uh,
1: I I think that it really has very little connection with the ancient world because they wouldn't have been thinking in terms of chemistry. I like to joke that their periodic table was quite small. (laughs) Uh, They didn't have one. And so they're not thinking about chemical elements, and we have to read the text in their context.
0: Okay, okay. Um, And then also along, and I don't know if this is the right, you know, when it comes to this creation, and maybe we'll come to this in a second, but – Maybe we shouldn't, we talked about, there's something I wanted you to hit on where you talked about good versus perfect, and I'm not sure which of the aspects of this when it comes to creation that you think that fits best with, Um, but I think that's a really interesting concept, move because most people have heard the story that God created the world good, um, and maybe this is jumping towards creation more than Adam and Eve, but um, could you talk to me about, like, um, the implications of... um, what word is actually used for, for good?
1: Yeah, I mean, that mostly comes up in chapter one, where day by day, God identifies it as being good. And we often think that thereby he is identifying it as as perfect, that the perfect state is being created. But we have to be very careful about that. There are other Hebrew words they could have used to talk about it as being perfect, um, we often think of it in terms of maybe moral terms. Uh, again, other, other words could have been used. Um, I think if we're going to work in context, we have to say, what would it look like for something not to be good? And of course, the text gives us that indication in chapter two, where it's not good for man to be alone. That has nothing to do with morality or perfection. It has to do whether the system is operating the way God wants it to. And so it's not good for man to be alone, meaning we haven't reached that optimal state of order yet, where everything's going to be running uh, the way it is initially supposed to. Mm -hmm. So good, uh, in that sense, says a lot less than what we often would make it to say, but it says precisely what the author wants to say about it. God is not setting up the perfect order in the world. He is setting up an initial order, an optimal order. And then ordering is supposed to continue uh, with people working alongside of him. That's what it means that they're created in his image.
0: Mm, and I, <laughs> I I don't know if people are tracking with the implications of some of what we're, we're saying here, but you're saying – um, but if they keep listening to this over, I hope they hit repeat and just listen to the questions that you're going to be bringing up with um, the way they consider like New Testament implications, how we live today. Um, we're going to get back to that creation part. That's helpful. But you talked about the good versus perfect. Well, we get back to this. That brings us back to people often talk about, well, God made these perfect, these two perfect human beings. And so we get back to this historicity of Adam and Eve. And, um, you know, I think it's helpful maybe we can talk about that like what would you say about the historicity of Adam and Eve that uh, might challenge what some people would normally expect with that?
1: Well, I believe that they are real people in a real past. I choose to use that wording rather than historical because even the word historical carries certain baggage for us that it would not have necessarily carried in the ancient world. so they're real people in a real past, and i I conclude that because They're included in genealogies, and I don't see in the ancient world fictional people being included in (laughs) genealogies. Um, And I also conclude that because it seems to me that's the easiest way to make sense of what the New Testament is saying. There are ways around that, and other people take them, but at this point, I'm very content to see them as real people in a real past. Having said that, however, I think that's important for the theology But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily what we have made them to be biologically. That is, even as real people in a real past, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the first and only human beings around. Hmm. And that's something that I'm unbundling, uh, suggesting that we keep the science question separate from the text and theology question.
0: Hmm. And that's going to feel threatening to some people just as you take that turn there. Um, yes, and um, so before you even jump into that any further, maybe just maybe we can take the turn by even just um, helping them understand what the name Adam means.
1: Sure. Um, when the text uses Adam, that's, that's just humanity. And often in Genesis two and three, almost always, it has the definite article on it, Ha Adam. And that means that it's not a personal name. Um, it's referring to humanity. And furthermore, the um, the the collective nature of that is very important. That God creates humanity. Uh, that's what Genesis one says. And so we have that that aspect. Um, you know, I talk about Adam and Eve as real people in a real past, but at the same time, I have to say those are not their real names
0: <laughs>
1: because those are Hebrew names, and Hebrew as a language doesn't even form until toward the end of the second millennium. And therefore, whatever their names were, these are given names by the Hebrew audience, uh, and they have meaning for the Hebrew audience. So we have to be real careful about those issues.
0: So you're saying Adam didn't call Eve Eve, is what you're saying, right?
1: I'd go for honey or dear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's...
0: but that, that seems like such a simple thing to say, and, and honestly, it sounds obvious when you just bring up the fact that, wow, that language wasn't even there when this original Adam and Eve would have been there. So um, I, I, that I just give people a quick second there to let their mind kind of recalibrate because um, – yeah those are just like little mind blowing moments um last
1: problem with all of this, Jeff because it's so much information that people haven't thought about before. It's tough to wrap your brain around it
0: yeah and i and I do hope as we kind of walk through this today, it really is my hope that just that it would help people loosen their grip on um the the certainty which which they they talk about the Old Testament stories. Um, particularly, this the stories of origin, and because they have such profound implications and, and grander theologies throughout Scripture, um, and, wholly... and that sense
1: of certainty is often expressed by the idea that I read the Bible literally. Yeah, but of course, if we're really reading it literally, we have to read it literally based on the Hebrew words and ideas, and based on what the author meant to say.
0: Right, and and some people understand this, but you've you've mentioned that there's there's inspired. Um, you consider the Bible inspired, but the translations are just that, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Translations or approximations are approximations, our best best shot.
0: So even though but we I mean the average person is going to say, "Well, can I even trust my Bible?" But you're saying, "Yes, but just keep that in mind that it's not necessarily the translation is a translation of something inspired, not necessarily inspired in those exact words itself." Is that
1: well, translations are as reliable as we can make them, and we've made a lot of progress on that to to put them reliably in another language. But the fact is, if it's another language, you can't always convey exactly the meaning that the word had in Hebrew into an English word. And that means that a translation is always going to have its limitations.
0: Mm. And this is, this is side, this is a side conversation, but I always enjoy pointing things out to to my friends that this is like, so when you see maybe folks from Islam that do not want to see the Quran translate, it's that principle at work, which is actually, it's a respectable principle, whether you agree yeah. that it's necessary or not, it's, it's a respectable idea. Um, well, let's, let's take another step and just keep pulling strings here. Like what about the nature of the image of God that we always talk about that, m- that humankind was made in God's image. And we hear that often, that that gives people um, their value. Um, Mm -hmm. But would you kind of contrast what is often used of as the image of God and what you see the the original text describing as the image of God? Sure. Again, our our current way of thinking, which is often so material
1: uh, in nature, has often tried to formulate the image of God as something material, or at least uh, to talk about Uh, The ways in which we are different from animals. There's no question that the image of God differentiates us from animals. But that does not mean that everything that differentiates us from animals is the image of God. So you can't say, well, the image of God must be our self-consciousness or our God consciousness. Any more than you can say that it's our opposable thumbs. It's not just the things that differentiate us from animals. Instead, the Bible talks about the image of God as that which gives people their god-given purpose and so when it talks about he made them in the image of god it talks about their functions to subdue and rule and the image of god then gives us our identity our identity as uh, ones who work alongside of god to continue in the process of bringing order that is an identity that animals don't have so it differentiates us from animals but it's not in terms of neuroscientific capacities or psychological mindsets or physical attributes. It's in terms of our identity and our roles as God created us. Um, As such, we can use the way images were used in the ancient world, which we should take account of, and talk about how we uh, kind of represent God in this world as images represented the God or as images represented the King. Hmm. Um, But it's those kinds of issues that, and in that sense, then the image of God is not something that can evolve because it's not physical. Okay. It's a God given task. And therefore, whatever you think of evolution, the image of God can't evolve. Hmm. Furthermore, the image of God is collective. We are humanity is the image of God. Um, And I would say, Christians can understand that in the same way that we talk about the body of Christ. We corporately are the body of Christ. We wouldn't say that each one of us is the body of Christ. Rather, each one of us are part of the body of Christ. And it's the same thing with image. Each one of us is not the image of God. Corporately, humanity is the image of God. And each one of us have a
0: part in that. Hmm. Again, I just feel like, I hope my listeners are just like jotting down these notes because it's not only has implications in how we see the God's image in the world, but it causes us, it gives us pause to the way that we use the image of God in arguments and other areas of life as well. It seems absolutely. Like. Yeah. You know, it kind of takes us, we're going to hit that one other area that we need to unbundle here because then they kind of all enter, they kind of dance back and forth with each other on some other issues. But, uh, you talk about the origins of sin. Like we always throw that together with Adam and Eve as it's, it's all tied together but you sort of try to separate out the origin of sin as well. Would you maybe take a second with that? Sure. Uh, clearly, sin is an important issue,
1: uh, and correspondingly, salvation is an important issue. And we have to be careful to preserve those important doctrinal elements. And nevertheless, we have to recognize that the Bible does not tell us, either in the Old or New Testament, how sin spread and how sin is, is passed along. Uh, it just doesn't tell us. Mm. We, we really are wasting our breath and time to talk about whether it's genetic or biological or all of these sorts of things uh, passed on through sexual. Enc- I mean, we, we've done all kinds of things with that. Mm. And every time we do it, we move outside of the Bible and start guessing. Mm. And that doesn't do us any good. Um, regardless of the mechanisms for for how sin spreads and is um, is uh, sort of attributable to all of us, uh, regardless of how that happens, the fact is we all are sinners and we all need salvation and we shouldn 't let our models get in the way of that
0: <laughs> even though some of this stuff you 're talking about that would would uh, cause the foundation of some folks' uh theology to to wobble a bit hey uh. When you talk about when we talk about original sin, um, we have this stuff in the that story of Adam and Eve where um, we talk about the Garden of Eden. We talk about them getting kicked out. There's a tree of life. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, Talk to me. Just talk to me about that for a second. The idea of sacred space as ancient folks would have understood it, and um, yeah, just sort of start there.
1: Sure. Um, In the Old Testament context. Uh, the Garden of Eden is not just a beautiful, glorious place for a vacation or a nice spot to kind of have a picnic. Uh, sacred, the Garden of Eden is where God dwells, and therefore it has this temple imagery connected to it, that God's presence is there, and that makes it sacred space. That's where Adam and Eve interact with God. And so that's a very important aspect. When they get kicked out, this isn't – um, just a matter of uh, green space or, or a lovely park that we can't go into anymore. This is the fact that they have been cut off from access to God's presence. And we, we've totally missed the theological importance here, uh, that this is about people kind of in exile from the presence of God. Hmm. And from that point on, Scripture is involved in getting back that access we often formulate in terms of salvation history. um, And that's certainly salvation, reconciliation, redemption are necessary. But the whole idea is that it's God's presence that is of the highest value here that needs to be regained.
0: Mm. And when you talk about his presence being regained, just to clarify, you're saying there is a difference between what a garden is and what Eden is. Is that right?
1: Yes. uh, In the biblical text, the little hint I have is that it says the four rivers flowed from Eden and watered the garden. By that, I assume that the garden is adjoining Eden, that Eden is the place of God's presence, that the garden is adjoining that. And that's something we know of from the ancient world. They typically built these gardens next to temples and next to palaces. And this gives that same imagery, which any
0: Israelite would have recognized right and that's another one of these things that you know we just read garden of eden and it's like oh it's this like lost city you know it was sort of like the the coolest place the best place on earth and all of a sudden they get kicked out of the pool and it's kind of like turns invisible and we have to wait for national treasure four to find it yeah Um, (laughs) um well as you move down um through the through the garden through eden um we talked about sacred space um and then But maybe talk to me about how ancient folks would have understood that and moving into this idea of the difference between, um, like, home and house. Like, you talked about that some. To me, they kind of blended together nicely. But how would they have seen the difference between um, the idea of being home and the idea of a house?
1: And that really goes back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we often think that we think of it because of our cultural river, our world we think of creation as like a, a general contractor building a house. And so, um, you know, we might think of the cosmic house, you know, it's it's walls and roof and foundation and heating and air conditioning and those kinds of things that we connect with a house. Um, that's what we would think a creation account would do. And I've tried to build the case that in the ancient world, They're not so much interested in the origins of the house, they're interested in the origins of the home. And the home is where your story comes to life, your home is where you find your identity, your home uh, is the order that you bring to your life. And so they're not so much concerned Um, about the material aspects, although they have to be there. You can't have the home without the house, Mm -hmm. at least in our Western ways of thinking. Other cultures are different. But uh, it's the home that's important. So I would say that Genesis 1 is, is a home story, talking about the origins of the home, rather than a house story, talking about the origins of the house. In that way, another analogy that I use is that you could think of Genesis 1 as sort of a mission statement and vision statement for the cosmos that talks about cosmic identity. That's the home,
0: more than cosmic origins if we think in material terms. Hmm. And and (laughs) it's hard enough for me to jump back and forth between these, so I hope – I'm just, I know I keep saying this, but I, this is sort of like inviting the professor into a classroom and everybody's minds just getting blown, just jot the notes down and and we're gonna have to lean into it at at a later date, I think, and read your books to help make sense of it. But I wanted to just, if you could touch for a second on some of the problems, um, and when I say problems, not that they are problems, but for the average reader who hasn't considered um, maybe some of the challenges between the creation accounts given in Genesis one and two that you deal with. Um you started to touch on that with the with how they see, you know, what the purposes of a family would be, but what are some of the other issues between Genesis one and two that people may not even have considered that you deal with? You mean in terms of connecting to our world? Or well, between Genesis one and two textually? I just mean textually. Like the people they just read through Genesis and don't even stop to say, Oh wait, this doesn't match up. What's Yeah, you know? Yeah.
1: Uh, many people, of course, uh, automatically think that Genesis 2 um, is going back and giving you a, a recapitulation of day six. Um, we read day six in Genesis 1, God created people, and now people read Genesis 2 as, okay, this is more detail about what happened on day six. Mm. Um, actually, there are there are lots of reasons not to take it that way. the uh, The idea that Uh, we have day six going on is because we think that somehow Adam and Eve are the two people represented in Genesis one, but Genesis one doesn't even talk about two people. It talks about a population humanity. And so there's, there's really not so much reason to connect those. Furthermore, we have the introductory statement in Genesis two, four, which transitions us from the seven days to Adam and Eve And that's the first of uh, 11 such transitions in the book of Genesis, and those transitions never introduce a recapitulation. They typically introduce a sequel, and that leads us to think that Adam and Eve are not necessarily the people spoken of in Genesis 1, though of course they could be. Hmm. Uh, So there are just some of those things that should lead us to a little more caution Hmm. as we think about you know, kind of what's the relationship between these two chapters. Hmm.
0: Thank you. And like I said, this is why at the beginning I, I wanted people to understand that you actually hold a very high view of Scripture, but these are things that have to be looked at and, like, made sense of. Um, I'm going to keep asking you this, just like, we're just popping out these, like, trouble questions that you're going to help make sense for us, okay? <laughs> um, talk to me about that. I want to talk about that Adam and Eve magic trick again, this thing where the we were taught the woman was created out of a rib because um, I'd never kind of heard your explanation before. Um, tell me why you think it could have meant something else than just the, than just grabbing this rib out of, out of Adam.
1: Sure. Well, when we, uh, the way we always understand what words mean in Hebrew Bible is by looking at how they're used. Uh, this one's problematic because there's no other context in the Old Testament where this word translated rib uh, is used to refer to something anatomical. Um, It's used a couple dozen times architecturally, but there it talks about this side or that side or the north side or the south side. And therefore the idea that it refers to side rather than rib is more defensible. And these ideas exist all the way back in the history of interpretation, uh, this sort of controversy. Um, So the idea that God took one of Adam's sides uh, and, Adam only has two of them, two sides. (laughs) And so this is kind of a cut him in half kind of deal. Um, And it's interesting that our modern response is often, wow, that's pretty radical surgery. But of course, why in the world would an ancient Israelite be thinking surgery? Uh, That's our way of thinking, not their way of thinking. And they're thinking in terms of what we could call ontology, the essential nature of man and woman. And this is indicating that that essential nature is equal Um, They're the same stuff. Remember, Adam just had named the animals looking for someone who would help him in sacred space. Hmm. And none of them had that role or uh, function available. But now woman, he sees that she is the same as him, not just another creature of a different sort. So same ontology, That also comes into the idea that you might remember in the book that I talk about Adam seeing this in a vision. Mm -hmm. He's not on the operating table in the surgical room. (laughs) Uh, He's seeing a vision. And in his vision, he sees himself cut in two and the one part of him made into woman. And so that gives him the idea of identity. Again, that's why I call it an account of human identity. This is who we are.
0: Yeah. And and just to clarify for folks who haven't read the book yet, when you talked about him having a vision, that kind of went along with this idea of deep sleep, right? Could you sure. just like double down on that for a second?
1: Sure. Uh, deep sleep, again, you look at the term, it's not the regular word for sleep. Um, so we look at contexts where it's used. And one of the most important ones is in Genesis 15, where God's ready to uh, ratify the covenant with Abraham. And he puts him into a deep sleep to show him this process of the torch in the oven passing through the parts of the animals. And in, in that vision, he communicates an important aspect of Abram's identity as the father of the covenant people. And so you get this identity um, issue coming out in a vision. And it's the same, same Hebrew root that's being used
0: yeah. in Adam. And, and that's helpful because, you know, sometimes it makes much more sense than when someone's trying to, when people intuitively have this deep confidence in Scripture, but then if you read that as if, you know, God is in the the Garden of Eden and the animals are doing sort of a snow white, bringing him surgical equipment, you know, while he pulls out a rib, yeah. it just yeah. gets really crazy really fast. Get
1: those latex gloves on.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, of course, we believe the dust would have been holy at that point. Um, <laughs> no, let's... Uh, I'm I'm just going to keep keep pe- peppering you here with these different issues. Um, talk to me for a second, if you would, about the importance of vocational function in ancient literature. Um, this is one that has major implications um, for New Testament theology, and I know in your Adam and Eve book you even brought in Tom Wright to to talk about this. But but especially just in the Old Testament and the ancient literature, talk to me about the importance of vocation.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, this ties into the image of God what is it that god has created humans for um there's there's a purpose and the the bible's very interested in the readers understanding the purpose not the material stuff but what are we supposed to do the image of god shows that we are intended to be vice regents we are supposed to work alongside god to continue the process of bringing order Again, this is the idea that we are participating in God's plans and purposes. And so we are in his image, we work alongside him, and order bringing is the idea. Mm. Um, That process was short-circuited when we decided we wanted to build order around ourselves instead of building order around God. Mm. And that, of course, is the story of our human fallenness.
0: Mm. And are you comfortable kind of – I know you're not trying to summarize Tom's work, but just the idea then of like when we have this idea of the vocation of Adam, um, how do we think of Adam then, the vocation of Adam in the New Testament, like as it transfers to mankind? Um, is there any kind of summary statements you might offer of that for New Testament or would you just say, Tom to read N.T. Wright's work?
1: Well, the of course, I'm not a New Testament person. That's why I had – Had um, Tom help out on that point. But certainly, I would see the vocation. I don't know that the New Testament is talking about the vocation of Adam. It's talking about our relationship with Adam and the way that we are subject to the same sorts of uh, scenario that is seen as having been set up through him. Uh, The the whole creation uh, fell. If we use that term, of course, the Bible doesn't. But the the whole creation came into that context, and this is something that uh, I track with with Tom Wright, um, that we're really talking about God restoring creation, and so we're we're part of that as humans. We are subject to sin. Paul uses Adam uh, to make that connection between Adam and Jesus. It's a useful analogy, uh, but it's Paul's analogy. It certainly wasn't the in genesis analogy yeah. <laughs> the old testament didn't understand it in those terms
0: and along with that when we jump back to the old testament i've heard you say something about we aren't gardeners like we we sometimes misunderstand that um did i hear you say we're more like priests then like because i'm thinking sure. about what we're called to do this like vocation that humankind is called to um maybe just restate that one more time for folks sure. who keep trying to get, I this get that from Gen-
1: i get that from genesis 2 15 uh, where it talks about uh, to uh, serve and keep or work and keep. And it makes us think that, um, again, if we only think of the garden as a garden, then we're gardeners and we're doing landscaping and pruning and planting and harvesting and those kinds of things. But the Bible is not presenting the Garden of Eden as, as in that mundane way. Uh, this is sacred space. And we are caretakers of sacred space. And that's what priests are. Uh, priests aren't just people who offer sacrifices. They are charged with the preservation of sacred space. That's why sacrifices are part of their job description. Mm-hmm. But those terms in Genesis 2.15, work and keep, are priestly terms. And they're used for the work of priests in sacred space. And so I see that as, as a very important distinction to draw when we consider what it is that Adam and Eve are doing in the garden.
0: So if I were to sort of play that out, and, um, and I don't know if you if you give thought to this or not, so am I hearing you say if we played that out, then, then really the whole world becomes sacred space and we become caretakers of the world in a very godly sense? Is that that we're all priests at that point in some way? Now well, I
1: mean, yeah, um, as Christians, of course, you know, it talks about us as, as a royal priesthood. Uh, Jesus is a royal priesthood. The Israelites are a kingdom of priests. We get that terminology being drawn often, but it may have different aspects to the analogy as we put it into those different contexts. Um, the world is, the cosmos is intended as sacred space because God intends to dwell in it. Right. Of course, he dwells in it in one way in the Old Testament, uh, in the tabernacle, in the temple. He dwells in it in another way during the ministry of Christ in the incarnation. He dwells in it in another way in the after Pentecost with the, the Holy Spirit, and we are the temple. And there's still yet other ways to come in new creation, as Revelation 21 and 22 clarifies. Hmm.
0: Well, and I just think that's such a helpful, whether or not it's the perfect illustration or, or analogy or not. It just... Oftentimes, when people say, "Hey, what's the point of this?" it gives this helpful imagery of like, "Oh, this is sacred space. These people I encounter are sacred, and I've been called to be a caretaker of of the world and the people around me and it's it's just um it kind of puts flesh on it, I think uh from Old Testament stuff to our modern day society even um you know John. I- how's this been how's your work over the years been received by the Christian world because I mean here I am I'm just asking you to like pull the pins on like grenades for how people have thought for a long time you just we just drop them in the room how's mm-hmm. it how have you been received by people um, as you've gone through all this
1: mm-hmm. generally very well, of course, there are people that don't like me they don 't like what I say they don't agree with it, and you can find them all over the blogosphere um, but Uh, There are a lot of people that respond very well to this. I lecture all across the country, around the world, uh, and people respond very well to it. Uh, I get emails almost every day uh, about people, and 99.9% positive Mm. people responding and saying how much this has helped them. Mm. They encounter my work on the BioLogos website. Uh, and again, uh, often find that I'm bringing some sense of relief to them as they've tried to put these aspects of their world together. Okay. Um, from the scholarly world, I find uh, lots of my academic colleagues um, accepting at least of parts. You know, sometimes academics can do that, be selective, <laughs> yeah. pick this and that, and that's fine. You know, in the end, Jeff, I'm really not trying to change the world. I'm not trying to convert everybody to my way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, but I have information to put on the table that I think is important. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to get that out there and uh, hope that people who find it useful, uh, that it will give them some some place to land where maybe they were missing.
0: Yeah, and I, and I just want to say, you know, that you, your work really is appreciated. I know in my own life that – it's been one of my most sort of unexpected sadnesses in life that the more you seem to, I, I've tried to pursue whose God has revealed, you know, him herself is within scripture more intently. The, the quality and sometimes even the reality of my own faith been called into question by the Christians who, who can see this like digging into scripture even more as wandering away from traditional faith. And, and uh, I mean, I'm sure you face that on some level, but it's, it's really helpful um, to, to put stuff on the table. And I've appreciated that, when I've what I've followed along with you the last couple of years, you seem very open-handed. Like you're not trying, like you said, you're not trying to force anybody to agree. You're just saying, "Hey, this is what the text meant. I mean, was trying to say." So you do what you want with it, but we have to be honest about what was going on here. And so, um, w- let me ask you a question, John. Two questions: um, this question, and then one more at the end. Um, we've barely scratched the surface of your work here, and if people have been following along, they've got a long list of new questions. What would you say to someone that's it's, it can be a little bit unstabilizing almost with their faith when they start to hear like wait the Bible's not exactly what I thought it was what do, what would you say to somebody like that? Well
1: I hope that I can constantly day by day find out that the Bible wasn't what I thought it was yeah. I think it's really important that we consider ourselves to always be in a learning process on a, on a learning curve and the day where i can't be surprised by the text anymore is the day where i should just hang it up. <laughs> so i think we should welcome uh the idea that there's still things out there that we're trying to figure out and that we don't know yet. okay. so i think that's that's kind of an important aspect.
0: Well, okay. and and john one of the things i always like to ask people is you know what are the questions you wish more people were asking you're you're digging into all this stuff but what is it that you wish others were asking more of?
1: Well, I still wish more people were asking questions about what did this mean in the ancient world? Uh, to me, that's a simple matter of having a consistent hermeneutic. If the author's moved by the Holy spirit and they're carrying the authority of God, then what they meant is important. And that's just a consistent methodology that, that if we don't have it, well, then we're just making things up. So I wish more people were, were working with that. Um, I, I would really like to see more attention being given, and it is increasingly being given, uh, to sort of the history of interpretation on all of this. Um, There are things that I'm saying that uh, would have existed back in the intertestamental period, in the rabbis, in the early Christian writers, um, and people are starting to research some of those. At the same time, we recognize that, especially the early Christian writers, uh, not really all of them, uh, were, were not asking the same kinds of questions we are of the text. Um, They were doing a different sort of thing than the kind of exegesis that we do when we try to recover an ancient world. They had no way to recover the ancient world. And of course, through most of the early periods of church history to the Reformation, they didn't have Hebrew to use. (laughs) So they weren't trying to do the same thing that we're doing.
0: Hmm. So good, man. Um, I'm still kind of thinking about the fact that Adam didn't call Eve Eve and Eve didn't call Adam Adam. I'm going to struggle with that one for a while. Um, How do people get a hold? You've got the Lost World of Genesis 1 and the Lost World of Adam and Eve books. These are accessible books for people to read if they're interested in, in digging into any aspect of this. Are there other ways? You mentioned a website that people can check out to follow your work.
1: Yeah, well, of course, I've got my Wheaton College website. That doesn't have too much information on it. You can go into YouTube and Google my name, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of presentations, many of them repetitive. <laughs> um, there, are, there are more Lost World books. We've got, uh, you know, the Lost World of Scripture uh, came out between the two Genesis ones. Okay. Lost World of the Flood is coming in March, and the Lost World of Torah is coming about a year from now. Um, Also, people can look at um, a new product that I was involved in, uh, the Cultural Background Study Bible. Uh, It's an NIV or NKJV. And uh, that has, of course, is a study Bible with all of this cultural information, historical, geographical, archaeological, manners and customs, uh, ancient literature, all built into the, the notes. And so people can access the, uh, the ancient world there.
0: Hmm. That's great. And John, I just want to say, one of your work has really um, undergirded some of Fearless Questions is about this idea that we don't want to be afraid of the truth. Like Fear tends to drive out love. And I just love that your work invites us to, to challenge things that, that look challenging in Scripture and that we don't have to be afraid of what we find. Because um, if it really is true, it should resonate with all the different areas, whether it be science, theology, history and all the rest and so your work is really really valuable and I just really appreciate what you're doing and appreciate you spending some of your time to come on and uh, share with me and uh, the folks listening so thanks so much John
1: happy to do it